welcome into the Esports Network podcast, where we talk all about esports and gaming and everything that that entails. Of course, we talk about the businesses of esports. We talk about, you know, some of the laws surrounding esports. Sometimes there's some issues that come up with copyright and trademarks. And, you know, it's a whole big jumbled mess in this new age of, you know, uh, video streaming and digital media. So here to kind of help me figure things out, let's welcome in Anita K. Sharma, Esquire, of course, attorney for Sharma Law. Anita, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule, I'm sure, to come on this show and give us a little bit of background, not just on your but also what you work on behind the scenes. Sure. So um, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Really appreciate it. Uh, huge fan of, you know, Esports Network and, and excited to be here. So I am an entertainment lawyer. Mm-hmm. I've been practicing um, for a very long time, almost 20 years and pre-digital, you know. So yes. I started out in what you could call, quote, traditional uh, media. So film and TV and really started getting into the digital media world in around 2013, which was really the tipping point, I think, at, at that time for the social media platforms and for creators. Because I think it was at that point where people realized, whoa, like I can build a business here. And there's, you know, it's more than just cat videos and it's people <laughs> actually creating compelling content and, and, you know, building followers. And so... Our firm, uh, we mostly represent talent. Um, We have recently gotten into the gaming space, which I'm very excited about. I've been working on it for the past year of trying to sort of network and meet people within the industry, um, within the world of gaming specifically. And now we represent a couple of, you know, big name gamers and we're making some inroads and doing those types of deals. And that's really exciting. Um, We represent a lot of influencers and a lot of digital content creators as well. And some actors and filmmakers and producers and people like that. So you run the gamut pretty much in terms of just talent coverage and and, and, and the like. I mean, so. Yeah, I just love working with creative people. So it's really, I'm not picky in that sense of what type of creative, but I just, I love working with creative people. That's awesome. And, some, and a, a lot of creative people need a lot of help. So I'm glad that they have you to kind of represent them and kind of show them and guide them what the right way is to do things. And so, I mean, let's just start at the beginning really quick, right? So how did you get your, I guess, end up getting into this kind of entertainment law and trademark law early on in your life? So I was always interested in working in the entertainment business. So that was never a question. And I ended up in law school and you know, in second year of law school is when people start to sort of think like, what kind of direction do I want to go into and um, go in and, you know, people are like, oh, I want to be a constitutional lawyer. I want to, you know, be a civil rights lawyer, et cetera. And for me, I just really loved film at the time and I loved parties and I thought, well, I'm just going to be an entertainment lawyer. You know, that's, I'm going to marry the two things I love the most together. And that's really how it happened. I mean, it was never really a question for me that I, I would work in some capacity in the entertainment industry. And I, you know, in law school, I thought about becoming an agent and maybe going straight to an agency when I graduated. I'm glad I didn't. Um, I do enjoy being a lawyer. It's a different skill set. But, you know, I, that was another avenue I explored. And, and frankly, today, like we do negotiate a lot of deals and we structure deals. So we do have that, you know, agent type role uh, a lot of the time. 
I got you. And so, I mean, obviously you've been in the industry for, like you said, 20 plus years, not to date you or anything like that. But. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I always feel like I'm dating myself when I say that, but I just got to be honest. Hey, you, you, you got the experience. Might as well, you know, flaunt it a little bit. And there's, no, there's no point g- gathering all that experience saying, you know what? I'm just going to say I have like five years experience. Maybe that'll trigger well, this time. That's a very positive spin, Kevin. So I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> no problem. I have to kind of spin it any way I can. As I, you know, spin master over here. But so you've been working in the industry for 20 years and you started your, your own kind of practice up in Sharma Law, uh, what made you kind of motivate you to kind of start up your own practice, your own kind of law firm? So the the road to starting my own practice, first of all, is is full of curves and stops and starts and, you know, um, detours. So, you know, I started my career at a big law firm in New York City, and that was exciting. And, you know, they paid very well and all of that stuff. So there was a lot of advantages of being there. But, you know, for me, I just wasn't into that sort of corporate culture. And, you know, it's very male dominated. There's a real hierarchy. Like, it just kind of wasn't my scene. And although I started in entertainment finance, so I enjoyed the work. But um, the actual culture itself really wasn't for me. So I left that firm and I, I did try to start my own practice at that time. And it was really challenging. You know, it's it's uh I think I was naive and thinking like, oh, it's going to be, I'm going to build a practice in no time. And it takes a long time to acquire clients. And so I represented a lot of independent filmmakers and it was, it was great. I enjoyed it, but you know, it's hard to make a living obviously. So you're going from making six figures to making zero and that's quite a jolt, but also, you know, a motivator. And so, yeah. And I ended up leaving New York sort of, you know, during the recession and um, that happened around like 2008 and going back to Canada and, and going to film school because I really was interested in producing. And I thought, I'm just going to take a break. Like I'm sort of going to explore this different avenue and see where that takes me. And I just kind of need to regroup. And and so that was an amazing experience. And I produced a short film that premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. I produced a low budget indie feature. And, and so it was it was great. And then, you know, having done that, I realized like I didn't really enjoy the day to day producing, but I loved the business and legal behind the art. You know, that was really what was interesting to me. And so I went back to my own practice and started again and just started to build it one client at a time. And and here we are, you know, we um, definitely have the largest roster in, of any entertainment firm in New York of digital talent and very competitive with LA firms as well. So, you know, I tell people, it seems like I went from law school to this firm, and that wasn't the case. There was a lot of struggle and stops and starts and learnings to get me here. But you know, we built this firm one one client at a time. And I'm really proud of that. I'm glad you brought up the the digital clientele you guys are kind of serving because that's mm-hmm. that leads right to the next question where you know when you first heard about you know this new age of entertainment right you you came in right as the tail end of it was kind of ending and this new age was beginning yeah. when you first you first heard of like internet per- personalities these digital content creators not just people you know making money while others watch them play or create something I mean what was your reaction to kind of hearing this new advent of a talent pop up so it was. Um earth shattering, (laughs) really, to say the least. And I'll I'll explain why, because I was representing a lot of, like I said, indie filmmakers and, you know, smaller producers and stuff. And I just kind of stumbled onto like a very large YouTube talent at the time, a female, a female YouTube uh, YouTuber. And I just liked what she did. You know, I was like, this person's funny because my friends had been sending me links and saying, hey, you should watch her. She's funny. And and then I kind of just pursued her as a client. And I realized that when I landed her as a client, started working with her, 
I didn't even really know what YouTube was or anything. Again, I just thought she was a talented person and I wanted to work with her. And I quickly realized that all of a sudden I had a client who had a ton of leverage. I mean, that was unbelievable, you know, because I'd been working with these filmmakers that were struggling and had to give their movies away to be seen because of the gatekeepers, right? Because they're, you know, you had to get picked up by a studio or a network Mm -hmm. or a channel, whatever. But the digital content creators owned their own channels, you know, their YouTube channels, their Instagram platform, Facebook, whatever. And they built their own audiences and there was no gatekeeper. They could just put whatever content they wanted out there as often as they wanted. And nobody was telling them you need to edit it. You need to do this or or rejecting it. Right. Mm -hmm. So they could put it out to the world. And if they had built a following that gave them a tremendous amount of leverage. So for me, I realized at that moment that that's the space that I needed to be in. Um, And, you know, one client led to another, to another, to another. I mean, I networked a ton, was in LA at least once a quarter, you know, pre-COVID and made those relationships. And now we work with a lot of managers and agents and, you know, have multiple clients with each. Mm. So, I mean, obviously you kind of talking about this YouTube, we're not going to get into specifics, obviously, but uh, what kind of challenges did you kind of face early on with this kind of new, newfangled concept of this, uh, this content creator? I mean, what kind of challenges do you think other companies and, and people have in this new age of entertainment? Yeah, well, there was no precedence, right? Mm-hmm. So there was, it was all of a sudden like, well, what is a deal? What does a brand deal look like? in this medium, right? Like it's not a television commercial where it's simply like an agency comes to a talent and says, appear in our commercial and they own everything. And the person shows up on a set, like all of a sudden it's um, brands coming to influencers and saying, can you create something for us? And the influencer doing all the production work and owning the content. And it's, I mean, it was just, it kind of, it turned everything on its head, frankly, from what the traditional entertainment world knew. Right. And as you can see from what happens to the music industry, like if you didn't, you didn't keep up or if you were sort of in denial about what was happening, um, you were just going to get obliterated and everybody was going to move on. And so there is, and still today, like I described as the wild West. I mean, that's not my own, you know, I didn't come up with that. Like many people use that to describe this world, the digital media world, but it is to some extent still like that. I would say in gaming, especially what I've noticed in gaming, which is interesting is I find that that world is where the influencer world was in 2013 Mm -hmm. and although it's a massive industry and bigger than hollywood and the you know the entertainment business it's in terms of the paperwork and in terms of the deals and the, the talent and you know lawyering up and having teams i think it's just starting to sort of pick up in that area of um people you know the talent and gamers realizing like this is a business and i need a team and i need and i can build you know i can build from streaming and and playing games all day long i can build something out of that and i i find that really interesting so you know every day it's something new we um i'm constantly learning and that's an amazing feeling being 20 years into a career and you're learning every day i mean that's that's I love that. And, um, you know, we've been really we've been able to set precedents and that's really exciting. 
That's true. You guys have kind of led the way in, in terms of what deals are kind of structured now and just how they are really implemented nowadays. And so I'm curious because you, you grew up in the era of like, uh, you know, television and movies and mm-hmm. you even had your, like you said, uh, your, your hand in film production. Did you feel a little sad to kind of see that the newer generations are moving away from the traditional mediums, from traditional TV and film? What was kind of your thoughts on, on seeing this, this transition from one generation to the newer one? I mean, I didn't feel sad about it at all, to be honest, because I felt, you know, like I said, like we represent talent, we represent creators. And I love the fact that they were unshackled, you know, and they could put their stuff out there without those gatekeepers making arbitrary decisions of whether or not, you know, their film's going to get made or their content's going to be created and funded. And so, you know, a lot of people like, for example, this whole day and date release of films, right? Like people are super upset about it. Like it should be released in the theaters first. And the Oscars are like, has to be released in the theater before it gets, you know, before it can be considered. And like, come on, like people, you know, it's just denying what's happening. And again, like, and I hate to throw the music industry under the bus. But again, <laughs> it's like the music industry is a perfect example of an industry that denied what was happening and put their head in the sand and look what happened. And so I just think like these, you know, traditional and film and TV people just need to like deal with it, frankly. And, you know, I look at my kids, I look at my nieces and nephews and they they live online. That's where they expect to watch things. You're not going to get them back into a traditional cinema. Like, sure. You might for like, you know, some big Pixar, you know, film, but you're not going to get them there more than a few, a handful of times a year, you know, things have changed. So, um, I wasn't, I didn't feel badly about it at all. <laughs> that's, that's putting it mildly, but I mean, yeah, I, I, me, I mean, myself, I'm rarely go to the cinema unless it's uh, for an event or something lately. And that's, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't go for, for movies anymore. I watch everything online. So it's like you mentioned, it's, it's a, it's a different generation. They're kind of everything is, on, is online. I mean, even music nowadays, you don't see very yeah. many artists go to the, the traditional route of going towards a recording studio and, and kind of be, being picked up there. You see them posting stuff on SoundCloud, post stuff on YouTube, doing covers, and then they get discovered that way. And that's kind of how things have changed nowadays. And so uh, with this kind of new advent of no gatekeeping, right, you can post whatever you'd like online. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of, do you think like a natural evolution for like, from an audience to kind of be closer to that talent? Because that way, they, without the audience, you don't really get the, that growth, I guess, in, in celebrity, if you will. Is that kind of just what you think? It's just a natural evolution of the audience and the creators? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's the first opportunity for the audiences to directly engage, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether or not a creator chooses to engage back is their own choice. But, you know, the, the audience knows that it can. And I think that, again, with the younger generations who are just like growing up and don't even know that there was anything else but the internet... Um, that I think there will be that expectation of that engagement and being able to like really feel like, you know, you're friends with this person or um, that you can communicate with them in some way. And I think, you know, there's obviously positives and negatives to that. There's like a lot of trolling and there's a lot of mental health issues because of, of things like that. But, you know, in general, it it has changed the way the Internet has changed the way audiences consume content and engage with creators 100 percent. I mean, yep. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a strange world nowadays. We have a community built up around a talent, which is it's it's, yeah. it's funny to see that happen. <laughs> in well, the talent. Movie. I mean, what's really interesting is that the talent has actually built their own audience. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. So that's they don't they're not depending on somebody to bring the audience to them. Mm. They have actually earned that audience, and so that is really what gives them the leverage. 
And so this brings me kind of to the next kind of controversial point that everybody who's a streamer, everybody who's a video content creator has to deal with. And, you know, the least favorite four letters anybody wants to hear is DMCA, right? Better known as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act published in the late 90s. Some might say, you know, these big video content sites like YouTube or Twitch have been, you know, overzealous and trying to protect themselves. I mean, what what do you think? This is and this has to be just like a natural reaction from these bigger platforms to protect themselves from, of course, video, music, film industries and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, the DMCA came along as like, you know, as a result of heavy lobbying obviously by these platforms and like they needed the, a way to um not be liable mm-hmm. for copyright infringements and users using third-party content, right? So the DMCA comes along as 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 a potential as a solution, apparently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Well, first of all, there's a few issues, right? Like yeah. things move so quickly in digital media that it's very hard to keep up, right? So you end up with things like the DMCA being slapped into place because they need a solution fast. And it's, it's like trying to put a round peg in a square hole, but that's all they've got, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with any sort of enforcement mechanism like the DMCA, I think there's always room for abuse. So there's always going to be, you know, those people out there that are falsely claiming that you have content that infringes their copyright. That's just a fact of life. That's going to happen. Having said that, I think that, you know, again, because we represent so many creators, so much talent it's very frustrating to me that these platforms like twitch like youtube um who make billions of dollars like we're not talking about millions billions um off of creators content right if you pulled off all the if you pulled all the creator content off of youtube what do you have nothing so in the same with twitch so it's i feel like there needs to be more of an onus on the platforms to figure out how to allow their users to use third party content, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's like what Facebook gaming did, which is, you know, make deals with the labels. I mean, that's, they have to do that. They are in the position to do that. They are benefiting from creators content and they have to help creators. And I think that's where my frustration is more than the DMCA is with the platforms and how they're, you know, their lack of um, helping creators like work with third party content for sure. And, and that Facebook deal with, with, with those labels was actually kind of some of the middle audio turn their heads and say, you know what, why don't these other pl- platforms do the same thing? And it's because Facebook has this enormous resource pool they can pull from in terms of, of money. But I'm sure like YouTube and Twitch have been big enough for 10 years at this point. They can, I mean, Twitch is owned by Amazon. Yeah. Come on <laughs> Twitch now. Twitch has more money than Facebook. Exactly. Like, and Google has more money than God. So it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I can't even, yeah, like that's what I'm saying. I mean, the fact that Twitch is owned by Amazon and can't even make a deal with Amazon Music. I mean, I don't know why. There could be very legitimate reasons why, but there actually, there's no transparency. So we don't know. Exactly. It's just kind right? of, you're left on the fringes asking what's going on. And they're just like saying nothing at all. They're saying that's, yeah. this is just our rules. We just, we just have to follow them because you're on our platform kind of deal. And but so we're going to make these clumsy attempts to try to help our gamers and creators like, you know, deal with the DMCA. And that's, that's their response when their response should be, 
we're going to help creators use third party content legally. Mm-hmm. And then we have to resort to, you know, the, the fair use uh, defenses from creators and people were like, well, is that really fair use? And it's just, it's a whole mess of things coming along. And so, uh, well, that brings me to a quick question. I don't know if you can answer this, feel free to answer this. If you can't, it's okay. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard about the XQC Twitch streamer who was recently banned on the platform because he streamed Olympic uh, games coverage. And so, the argument there was that he was, you know, uh, he wasn't really using fair use because he wasn't transforming the work or anything like that, and it's yeah. copyrighted material. So, um, and then well, he, he was also benefiting commercially. Yes, yes. And so, what are your thoughts on him trying to argue against this? Is it is it really in his best interest to kind of argue against this kind of uh, iffy issue? Right. So, I mean, I'll I'll definitely comment on it just with the disclaimer that I don't know all the facts right. inside now, like as I would need to know as his attorney, for example. But um, on its face, it seems like a pretty pretty blatant infringement, mm-hmm. right? Of many different copyrights, including the Olympics, etc. You know, the broadcaster that exclusively owns the license to broadcast. There's all kinds of infringements there. I think that fair use has been so misunderstood and overused and misused and it's very narrow. Fair use exceptions are very narrow, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about criticism, parody, um, transformative uses, like using a tiny snippet, not streaming a bunch of one thing, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, using a tiny snippet of something to comment, like, you know, for in a documentary or for news purposes. So... And also, you know, benefiting commercially is another factor people look at. Like, you know, I always tell my clients, look, if somebody was using your work, you would be pissed and you would want to get paid. Yes. And even if you didn't expect to get paid, you would at least want them to have asked you, (laughs) you know, is it okay? Is it okay if I use your song in my video or is it, you know what I mean? So I think creators have to put themselves in the the copyright owner's shoes, right? And understand like... How would you feel if somebody was just using your content and benefiting and making money off of it? And so fair use is just because you call something fair use doesn't make it fair use is my point. And and I think that people think they can just say, well, it's fair use. And that's the end of the conversation. Um, that's not, unfortunately, how it works. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I used to work for a radio station. We would always get those meetings about this is, remember, this is what we can use in terms of audio and anything else would be outside of fair use. And so I, I am uh, acutely aware of fair use. So you're not telling me anything new, but for people out there who need to know, this is, you know, fair use is very, very narrow. It's it's, it's a, almost, you have, to, you have to really, really figure out how it's fair use at this point. But like you said, well, it's a bunch of, there's no black or white. Yeah. Right? Like fair use is determined by weighing a bunch of different factors. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. Like these are, you know, complicated legal concepts. It's not something that, you know, we should just be tossed around. I mean, like I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to diagnose somebody with some condition that, you know, I'm going to say you have this condition just because I say you have it. Like, I don't know anything about medicine. So it's the same about fair use in copyright law. Right. So I'll, I'll leave it to the lawyers then to kind of <laughs> discuss it. But uh, going back to this DMCA, we've also had a big issue lately of these third party companies kind of coming in and using a DMCA takedown as a form of abuse. And I'm curious, have you had any firsthand experience through clients, uh, you know, having this issue with takedown abuses? I have luckily not have that had that issue. I've had the issue where people have mis- like issued takedown notices 
without understanding that my client had a license to use it mm -hmm. or thought they did and were misunderstood, weren't claiming it was fair use, but it was a situation where they honestly thought that they had the permission to use it. Um, and that situation has come up. Mm -hmm. And so, but I haven't seen it where it's, I've had clients abused and, 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 you know, their channels um, suspended, et cetera, because some, somebody's issuing a bunch of notices. No, I have not seen that. Perfect. Okay. So I'm, I'm just curious because people are always complaining about that on Twitter and just like, I don't, no. I don't think it's that, is that, is that common? I mean, obviously people still have issues like that, but I don't think it's a very common thing to have that happen. And yeah, so I mean, look, at, at the yeah. risk of, you know, sounding um, like a snob. I mean, I, our clients also are like, big and experienced and professional and kind of know what they can use and can't use and have me have us like our firm to help and a team and like people to advise them. So I think that also makes a difference, right? For our clients. Anita, you do not, you do not sound like a snob. Trust me. This is, you sound professional. You're 20 years experience. Like saying, well, not, you know, the little people have the problem, <laughs> but not my clients now. It's not. It's not, it's not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious is how often have you had to defend, you know, copyrights and trademarks? I'm sure it's like every day for you. Like, oh, well you have to send a notice or, or, or yeah. cease, and desist, uh, cease and desist to a company to kind of Absolutely. stop using things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're technically not a litigation firm but we will issue cease and desist and kind of take like those the first sort of baby steps towards like a full-blown litigation but absolutely i mean a, a huge problem for our clients is fake merch mm. um, being sold and you know if you own a trademark you are under an obligation to defend that trademark so you can't just own a trademark and let people copy it you know and put it put it out everywhere because it dilutes you know your rights in your trademark so yeah, no, we, we, it happens every day for us. We have clients whose name and likeness is used on some random product or some random image for a product. And yeah, it comes up all the time. So I'm, I'm curious with, with trademark laws uh, in, in terms of how they affect, you know, international law, how have you had to kind of deal with, because, you know, obviously, you know, any John, Dick and Harry from, you know, a, a country outside the U.S. can have their own printing machine and print out T-shirts with your clients' names and faces on it. How have you yeah. kind of had to deal with that in recent years? So trademark law is country specific. So if you've registered in the U.S., you only have rights in the U.S., um, so it's difficult, like it's it's difficult to enforce, but at the same time, you can reach out to those people and tell them to stop and threaten, you know, litigation wherever they are. Um, so there's there's different avenues, but it is it's difficult absolutely to enforce. And so obviously people don't always have great lawyers like yourself to kind of help them out. But uh, what can people do to kind of protect the content they create online or, or, you know, kind of make sure they step in the right way to make sure they don't overstep uh, in terms of, you know, copyright and trademarks. Is there a way to like, establish fair use or, you know, is it, is it just kind of just, uh, you kind of have to just do it and then see what happens kind of deal. So I think it's um, everything's on a case by case basis, mm -hmm. right? So, Definitely, like, you know, in, more, in most brand deals, for example, they're very specific about telling you no logos, nothing in the background, no use of music, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So those, you know, if you kind of look at those parameters, those are good to go by, you know, if you're creating content that you're benefiting commercially from. And, you know, don't use, um, it, it's hard. And like many companies aren't going to come after you, like if you're wearing like a trademark shirt um, in your content, et cetera. But it's just really like common sense, right? Like think mm -hmm. about, are you using somebody else's content in a way that 
you they should be compensated i mean that's really the question you know is is that what you're doing and if that's what you're doing then you kind of have to reassess or maybe reach out to them and you know i tell people all the time like you would be so shocked at people's reactions when you reach out to them like people are just so grateful that you're actually asking Mm -hmm. that many times they will give you that permission it's um it's kind of amazing that's awesome i mean it's true i've asked uh, millions of times for the creators if i can use you know a clip here or there or a yeah. sound bite and it's they're really just like very nice like oh yeah sure go ahead it's like no big deal and i'm just like all right cool i'm just gonna take a screenshot of that and just save that in my folder and make sure if i get any issues here's the the, the permission i mean mm-hmm. so these these bigger platforms youtube twitch maybe facebook not as often but what can they do to help folks better understand kind of the DMCA rules or is there anything that they can really do from their end from a legal standpoint to kind of make things clearer for everybody? Yeah. So, you know, it's again, like copyright, there are complicated concepts to try to explain. I think, I think it's good that all of these sets uh, sites have, you know, frequently asked questions and like they do actually try to explain it. I think what, I think that's helpful, but what is more helpful is providing clear, easy mechanisms to respond to a DMCA takedown notice, um, the ability to appeal that, the ability to get a license to use someone else's content easily. Like the, that's where the, the big platforms would be much more helpful is like providing those mechanisms to actually deal with the DMCA instead of just explaining what copyright infringement is. <laughs> like give them the actual tools and also, like we spoke about before, um, get them, get creators access to music libraries, you know, get them access to things where they're not infringing copyright. That would be helpful. I agreed. Fully agreed. And so, I mean, this is a, a landscape that's still kind of changing and still kind of developing over the next few years. Uh, what, in your opinion, does the future of copywritten and trademark media look like with this ever-changing digital landscape ahead of us? So the laws are still quite archaic and they haven't really caught up to digital media. The the thing is, you know, the internet and technology and our computers, and they've given us the ability to cut and paste and copy and, you know, just take other people's work very, very easily. I think the concept of copyright itself won't change in the sense that, you know, if you create something, you should have some ownership rights in that thing. I think that what might change is, scenarios like in which you're allowed to use it right like if you look at creative commons licenses like that came out of a need for people to just be able to easily license content and so that you know that mostly is in the educational world but that allows people to very easily license so i think you'll see i think we'll see more stuff like that coming up like the actual you know pillars of copyright law won't change but the the way that people can work with copyrighted works will change. Perfect. So like maybe a library or something that people can kind of go yeah. to and check it out. But and we're already seeing that, right? With yeah. like the royalty-free music libraries online. So I think though I think there will be more more easy creators will be able to more easily access copyrighted content through different means. Well, uh, I only got one last question for you, and I have to ask it every time I have an attorney or a lawyer on the show, and I have to ask, obviously, no names, no real details, but what has been an interesting case that you had the pleasure or, or displeasure of participating in or seeing? I mean, it's like, honestly, there's so many interesting cases. 20 years worth of cases. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting things. I think, 
I think like when we do deals with new platforms, it's very interesting. Um, like for example, we did a deal with Quibi when that had just popped up and it was the hottest thing around and everyone was super excited about it. They had like a gazillion dollars and we're paying creators a ton of money. And, and so that, you know, those that deal was really interesting to structure so like that kind of stuff is really awesome i'm really excited to see like facebook audio now mm -hmm. so now we're seeing more facebook audio deals and like what is what is this like what does this look like you know because they're in trying to compete with clubhouse like really just trying to build something up real quick real fast and so reaching out to a bunch of creators to sort of participate in that initiative so for me like the really interesting deals are those ones like you know um I did have a I did have a client who got in some hot water um, for traveling to North Korea and then painting a positive image of it. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, that was that was a great. That was like 24, 48 hours of phone calls and dealing with brands and trying to reassure everybody and everything's fine. Like sometimes funny things like that happen where you're just like, "Come on, man!" Like common sense, a little bit rules. Yeah, like, come on, there's, there's nothing positive about it. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's some funny stuff comes up sometimes like that. Well, uh, uh, nothing funny about what you do because it is very helpful for a lot of us in the, in the creative space. And obviously your, your job is helping creators. And so we can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and giving us your perspective on, on certain things relating to the you know DMCA and takedowns and, you know, all the other nonsense between that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure. Oh, is there anywhere anywhere that people can reach out to you? Whether it's like LinkedIn, I'm assuming, is, is the best yeah, way? Yeah, you know, I'm going to be the boring lawyer here and tell people that LinkedIn is the way to reach out to me. Um, it's, you know, I'm an attorney. I don't really need to be putting um, all my personal information out there on the internet. I think I think my clients appreciate, you know, maintaining a bit of an air of mystery. <laughs> Their attorney is a good idea. So, so, yeah, LinkedIn is the way to reach me. Awesome. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, anything else coming on the pipeline, you're more than welcome to hop back on and talk about how your latest client, you know, went to South Korea instead and did yeah, a great exactly. job. That would be much better. Yeah, <laughs> I would be very pleased to say went to South Korea. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you. So she's Anita, Anita Sharma, of course, attorney at Sharma Law, the mysterious Anita Sharma, of course. You got to say right. that. <laughs> and I'm Kevin Correa right here on the Esports Network podcast. Yeah.